Mean Old Lion Media present Black Arm of the Law. Welcome to Black Arm of the Law podcast. I am your host, Dr. Rochelle Brackney, also known as Chief B. Each week, I'll be examining the most pressing legal issues of our times and their unique impact on Black and Brown communities and bodies. So settle in and please subscribe and rate and follow and comment on Twitter and Instagram or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. You can also follow me, Chief B on Twitter. So let's jump into it. Today, my guest is someone who needs no introduction, whose bio and resume is longer than mine. I'm talking about the black arm of the law. This is the long arm of the law with how long he's been in the profession, more than 50 years. Our conversation today is going to be with the recently retired former president of IACP, um, well-renowned, famous in all fields, and we'll get into a little bit of his bio as we talk about some of the, the topics. I am speaking today with retired chief Lou Deckbar from LaGrange, uh, Georgia. Welcome, chief. Thank you. I appreciate you inviting me. Well, I'm absolutely excited. Um, you know, I've been a fan. I was fangirling um, for a very long time before we actually met in person. And I don't know if you recall or remember the first time we ever met. Remind me. I had a good, me- I got a good memory of just short. <laughs> okay, so I'm not gonna to, to pretend. I was when I say I was fangirling, I was. The first time we met um, was in San Diego, I believe, when you were just finishing up as chief or president of IACP, and they were switching over to Terry Cunningham. And after the service, um, or the swearing-in service, they were all taking pictures. And then I, no, it's Orlando. It was Orlando. And so they're all taking pictures with the incoming president. And I had followed the work that you had did and have been extremely impressed with all the work you had did about around procedural justice. So as they're all taking pictures with the new president, I come up and say, hey, can I take a picture with you? Because I need to know and be in contact with the people who've done the work, not the people who are interested in doing the work. And you were gracious enough to take a photo with me um, that I still have to this day, you know, a little less wrinkled um, than currently, uh, probably a little less weight than as well. I do remember that now that you remind me. Yes. Uh, Yeah. After the new president sworn in, of course, the focus is him and, you know, the rest of us kind of step back. But yeah, you were very gracious and, and kind to introduce yourself. So the reason I wanted to talk to you, the reason I thought it was so important to talk to you is because you have more than 50 years. That is a decade, a half a century in policing, in the law enforcement profession um, from a very young age. And you recently retired in February, if I'm correct. Yes, ma'am. So can you talk to me a little bit um, about the past 50 years? Uh, I I can't say a brief bio because 50 years is nothing brief about that, right? Can you give me a little bit and let the viewers hear a little bit about your professional career before I start delving into the more emotional parts about what drove you, the things you were passionate about, the things that you were committed to? Um, Well, actually, uh, my introduction to uh, police services uh, was when I transitioned from being a Boy Scout to an Explorer Scout. And it was affiliated with a sheriff's office, the Marion County Sheriff's Office in Salem, Oregon. And uh, what we did essentially is we 
look for lost hunters, uh, lost hikers, uh, help injured folks that had gotten out into uh, the wooded areas and, and either became uh, injured or incapacitated or in some cases, you know, had, had died and just trying to locate them. And then on occasion, we would assist with evidence uh, uh, location. And uh, the reward that uh, you got from that kind of work uh, when you were able to just in a very short period of time be in somebody's life, but in a significant way that uh, they'll recall for the rest of their your, their life, even though you may not recall it, I think gave me kind of my, my introduction to the whole notion of, of service. And because it was affiliated with uh, the sheriff's office, uh, many of the folks that I interacted with were uh, sheriff's deputies or members of the sheriff's office. And so I had a, a very positive interaction with, uh, with law enforcement. I couldn't, uh, my family couldn't afford uh, college, and so I went uh, into the military. Well, some would argue I wasn't in the military. I went in the Air Force, and uh, I was in there from 73 to 77 and was a law enforcement specialist, a base, base cop. And while I was there, I was able to knock out a couple of years of college, got out, started my uh, policing career in Wyoming at a boom town, and spent a couple of years as a police officer and then uh, was uh, hired by the prosecutor's office as an investigator. I worked there for eight years, um, recognized that I was interested in, in uh, being a police chief in my early 30s. And uh, in Wyoming, uh, there are just a couple of towns of, uh, of uh, significant size, and there's not many towns. I think there's like 79 in the whole state which is almost 100,000 square miles. And uh, I think the population now is about a half a million, but when I was there, it was less than that. And uh, so I knew I'd have to leave the state. My wife's only condition was we go somewhere it didn't snow nine months out of the year. And uh, I knew somebody from Macon Police Department, so I called him. Uh, he said they were hiring. I went through their academy, went through the state academy, started over again as a police officer, and then uh, within a year or so, I uh, was able to, because of my investigative background, lateral to a smaller agency as a captain in charge of investigations. Finished my master's, was a police chief in the Atlanta metro area for four years, and then came to LaGrange and spent 28 years here. So 32 years as a police chief. That's, so, that's, a, that's a quick snippet. Yeah, I'm going to stop you there because I, I wrote down a couple of things. So first of all, you know, or you may not know, so I'm originally from Pittsburgh. So I'm a city girl. I am not the person you would have been rescuing in Oregon. Like, that would not have been me. There would have been no need. I would have been at the lodge somewhere having some cocoa, some coffee while they were out there. Uh, well, now, I know that right north of Allegheny County, I think, is Beaver County. And uh, that I've hiked and ran in that area, so I know you've got woods. You just chose not to explore them. Exactly right, right? A, not only am I a city girl, I am a smart city girl, right? I was not going out in those woods, right? So, and one, so we, the, the other thing is, is, is so interesting to me is that the areas that you're coming from, Oregon and Wyoming, right? These are not areas, and we're going to get into this, known for its high levels of um, investments in training, right? In very formal police training, right? They, they, not that they're not good folks, not that they don't do good work, 
But in terms of being very progressive towns and progressive places around some of the ideas that you really started exploring later in your career, um, I find it interesting how, how easily, or maybe not so easily, maybe you can tell me that, how, the transition from these very rural areas, and maybe that's a better way to put it, these are rural areas where policing is done in a very different way than someplace outside of Macon, Georgia, or the Atlanta area. How was that transition for you? You know, that that's interesting because what's unique and I think understated and misunderstood about rural policing or smaller town policing is that you don't have the luxury of specialization. And so you'll be the police officer that shows up, um, does the investigation, does the follow-up, collects the evidence. And if you're conscientious, you're always learning. And so when I went from, you know, 10 years of experience in Wyoming and I went to uh, Macon, which, you know, very urban, a lot of poverty, a lot of challenges, um, officers there were just hopping call to call to call and they would you know, document the incident and move on to the next call. And I would, you know, be, because of my background, go to certain calls and would be gathering evidence or looking for things that they would ask, well, how did you know to do that? I mean, so I had a much deeper uh, level of experience in terms of comprehensive investigations and understanding uh, the nature and importance of certain evidence. And that my background of eight years with the prosecutor's office was very valuable because there's a great distinction between probable cause and cleared by arrest and proof beyond a reasonable doubt. And oftentimes agency standard is PC when it should be much higher than that for a couple of reasons. One is if you want to ensure you got a conviction, then you need to have the evidence. And number two, just because there's probable cause to arrest somebody doesn't necessarily mean they're the ones that did it. And so you need to look beyond that standard. And so uh, I think uh, I think I was a better police officer and, and detective in Georgia uh, because of my experience in, in Wyoming. And so I think that's also really interesting to me, too. And we're going to have other guests on the show as we talk about the full length of the entire legal system, right, from start to end in this whole concept and because you really did some interesting things over your your 50-year career. And you found yourself in places where you could influence, like actually influence policy and training and the vision and the way in which we went about the work of policing. I mean, at some point, and I'm going to bring us back to some of these issues because I want to delve into them once we get a little bit past your history. You worked so hard, though, that you rose not only for more than, what, 30-something years as a chief, you not only rose to that label, you rose to the highest level of presidency of the International Association Chief of Police, an agency that represents more than, you could probably give me the number better than I can, but I know when I go to the conferences, there's more than 15, 17,000 attendees from across the world at this organization. Can you tell us a little bit about IACP, how you found yourself on that trajectory, and then we're going to swing back because I'm going to pull all these things together as to how um, I'm going to pull these all together about some of the most innovative, procedurally just things I saw you doing in your career and what was fascinating for me, for the audience, 
that, and in full disclosure, that you are a white male or white appearing male. So someone who's leveraging, I'm going to be careful with that, right? Someone who's leveraging kind of ideas that you were, were unheard of. And this was before George Floyd. This is before Tyree Nichols. This is before, you know, or close to um, the Michael Brown incidents of the world. Like these, you're doing stuff that is just out of the box. So talk to me about that rise. And then we're going to get into the meat of it. Um, well, IACP, as you indicated, is the uh, largest um, uh, law enforcement leadership organization, executive leadership organization in the world. I think when I was president, we had 150-some countries. Um, as the president, I get to appoint uh, a third of the governing board. There are, I think, 42, maybe 43. Um, and so for the first time, uh, this is a result of some other experiences I had, um, I appointed somebody from the Israeli uh, National Police and somebody from uh, uh, the Arab Emirates. And so for the first time, we had representation from the Middle East. And of course, an interesting dynamic between those two, because that was before, um, you know, the uh, travel restrictions and the uh, involvement of uh, Israel with uh, other Arab countries uh, kicked off, uh, I think, several years ago. And... Uh, and as, as a result of that experience, I guess I, I'm a student of our profession, so I'm always looking at, you know, what's the private sector doing? Because behavior in organizations tend to be relatively consistent. People behave the same regardless of what organization they're at. The type of uh, organization, of course, changes, but the behaviors and those things that are studied, I think, uh, easily transfer from private sector to the public sector. So I'm always kind of looking at, you know, what the private sector is doing because frequently they're out there ahead of, of, the, of the public sector. Not always, but, but frequently. And uh, one of the things that I saw in 2004 when I went to Israel is that by policy, and I think law, they have to, when they shoot someone, they have to... Uh, shoot in a non-vital area if they can do so safely. And at the time, I thought, <laughs> that would never work in the U.S., so I kind of poo-pooed it. Then uh, when I was IACP president, I'm going to Europe, I'm going to the Middle East, I'm going to Arab Emirates. Um, and uh, what I find is that in most of the Western uh, countries in Middle East that... Uh, that admonishment to shoot non-vital areas is uh, is taught, and in many places is the law for uh, justification and application of deadly force for law enforcement. And then I'm seeing, you know, as cameras, body cameras become used more, and we've all seen them. We've seen these folks with clubs, guns, knives, um, swords, and they're standing there for a period of time. They have their weapon out. So there's not an issue of targeting. They've already got their uh, sights on, on the individual. And then that person starts making an aggressive move. And when they start, you know, they pass that line in the sand, whatever it is, and then they start receiving shots to center mass. Well, I was in policing in the 70s. That wasn't called center mass. That was called shoot to kill. And if you look at the old targets, 
they have K on them, K5, K3, meaning kill shots. And so in the late 70s, early 80s, we changed that from shoot to kill to shoot to stop the threat. But we didn't, cha we didn't change the targeting, we just changed the vernacular. And so um, as I'm looking at these videos and as I'm seeing what's going on around the, the, the world, um, you know, the difference between a, a knife in uh, uh, Jerusalem and a knife in uh, LaGrange, Georgia, uh, probably isn't much difference. Matter of fact, they're probably both made in China. So there is no difference. And I asked our firearms instructors, I think in 2018, 2019, uh, to go ahead and start looking at this. Initially, I got some pushback, but to their credit, they looked at it. They did extensive reviews. Uh, we put together, I think, about 500 pages in uh, research and uh, decided that we would uh, create a course of fire called Shoot to Incapacitate. Uh, what, our, uh, what we found in talking to orthopedics and pulmonary uh, uh, pulmonologists is that you shoot someone's center mass and it takes sometimes 45 seconds to 90 seconds for them to bleed out or for shock, sufficient shock to occur for them to stop. Well, we've all seen those videos where they keep coming and they're shooting them, shooting them, shooting them. And so they're catching, you know, seven, eight, nine rounds in the chest and still coming. Orthopedics tell us if you shoot around the pelvic girdle, um, you're more likely to stop them. And they're more likely to survive. There's a number of studies that uh, somebody that is shot in the abdomen and the thigh, uh, if they get immediate treatment, uh, are going to survive anywhere from 85 to 90 percent of the time. If you're shot in the chest cavity, you're going to die 90% of the time. And so I have yet to see a use of force where we talk about the value of life, yet we don't give our officers options. And when we first, well, since we taught that, we've had three police-involved shootings. One of them met the uh, climate where shoot incapacitate was appropriate. The officer started walking the shots up, a couple in the thigh, once in the gut. He immediately dropped. They rendered aid. He was out of the hospital and in jail in six days. He was out of the hospital before we cleared the officer on the shooting. So I guess I'll, that's a long way of saying that to be a good student in this profession, I think you've got to constantly challenge and look. And uh, it took me, though, it took me 15 years before I went, mm, maybe there is something to this. Right. And and the reason being is, you know, I, I so there's a couple things I just really want us to hit on here, which is important, right? We are socialized. I call it blue socialization. We are socialized to a certain way to behave, um, our cultures, et cetera. People say all the time that, you know, culture eats policy for breakfast. I don't believe that. I believe policy is the driver of culture, right? And how we implement our policies will determine how people behave and respond to, right? And there's a study out of Harvard in 2016 that basically says that the, the culture is not the culprit is actually the title of the, the article and it's the policies that drive it. If we have policies on paper that say we're going to shoot to kill people, the culture may shoot to kill, right? And the way that we implement, but the, what's so important about this, this whole concept is the public has asked for decades, why don't we shoot to incapacitate particularly? And we've always given them the, shoot to kill notion that we cease the threat but you know 
um, there's two points I want to make here. First, this didn't go over well in the police community. So something you were really doing that could save a lot of folks, and particularly Black folks who are often on the end of that shoot scenario, right? The police community pushed back. As a matter of fact, a, a, a renowned person, Frank Faluzzi, Faluzzi from the FBI, is retired. He's an MSNBC contributor right now. He's always on. Somebody who I've also gone against and like, dude, this does not work. Um, you need to get out of your 19 whatever's FBI mindset. He wrote an entire article about you in the Washington Post. So he wasn't real happy. And he brought experts to say that you were likely to get officers killed. You were likely to bring more harm to that. Can you address that? You just said this stuff works. If we pay attention to the orthopedics, if we pay attention to other countries, this stuff works. Yeah, and, that, and then you know, when people make broad statements like that, I think um, it's more of a criticism of themselves because they haven't done the research and they don't know what they're talking about because we're not talking about an officer pulling his gun and quickly shooting a gun out of somebody's hand like Annie Oakley. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about if you we looked at 5,000 police shootings, 50 to 60% of them involve a firearm. And in our training, we tell folks, don't even consider those. But there's another 40 to 30% that don't. <clears throat> and these are the ones where we say, if the opportunity is there, and the opportunity is going to be a combination of time and distance. And when you consider that 25% of all folks that are killed by the police are affected by mental illness, Many of these are the ones that with the club, with the knife, that are shuffling towards the officer. We've all seen them. And the officers start um, shooting, and they're shooting center mass. Um, the other thing I would say in response to those that are critical is I don't think that um, our skill level is so challenged that we can't learn from what they've done in Europe and the Middle East for 50 years. Um, and so if as a profession, I'm, I'm kind of reminded of, I think uh, there was a, a physician before the Civil War that went over to England and learned about the germ theory. And he came back and he tried to share it with his colleagues. And uh, of course they rejected it. And we lost more folks in the Civil War uh, because of septus than uh, uh, wounds received directly on the battlefield. It was the treatment of those wounds that oftentimes killed, uh, killed the soldiers. And uh, I, I feel like that uh, at some point, uh, the profession's gonna realize that there's an opportunity here to officers have, can protect themselves, but a use of deadly force doesn't have to result in a deadly event. And uh, I think uh, I think our research supports that. I think the experience in Europe uh, and the Middle East um, uh, also support that. And interestingly enough, I was invited last two weeks ago to Florida to talk to uh, the uh, International Association of Campus Law Enforcement Administrators. I am. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And one of the chiefs from Florida that had come up here to see it, we've had about 120 agencies come come through. Um, 
he stood up afterwards uh, to the folks that were at my presentation and said, we adopted this. And so I think, and I also got to be fair to those that are critical of me, it took me 15 years <laughs> to process this. And so their reaction is the same reaction I had when uh, I first saw it. This will never work in the States. So uh, I also have to, you know, give my uh, my colleagues uh, a break as far as I understand their criticism. I would just say, tamp it down a little, look at the research. I've sent out, I don't know, I've got 500 and some pages, including an executive summary, and I'm happy to send it to anyone that wants to look at it. So this isn't the first time, though. Um, you, you make this habit in your career of finding yourself um, either wittingly or unwittingly making national news when you least expect it to do, right? You're thinking, all right, I'm, I'm thinking of this policy that could reduce harm um, in communities. It's what communities have asked us for. It's studied. It's another thing I'm, I, I do push back on on our profession for is that we don't, we often become very stagnant. Even the way we've changed our, the ways that we shoot. I remember the first time we started shooting, um, officers would take their, their, their ammo and brass and put it in their hands and put it in their pocket, right? And then it was after that they were at the firing range and they're finding officers dead. Um, and they're realizing because something as simple as they didn't want to police their brass or pick their brass back up or they needed that brass again to recycle and reload was causing deaths, right? That officers were being shot. So it takes us a very long time in the profession. But you found yourself, um, and this is interesting to me based on the work that I do, you found yourself in 2017 making, I believe, was it 2017? National headlines again um, regarding a lynching and an apology that you made on behalf of uh, the family, and I just want to make sure I have this right, um, Austin Calloway. Can you tell us about policing's failures? Because I talk a lot about that in my, my initial broadcast, talks about the connection between slave patrols, lynching, and American policing today. In spite of the fact that we would all believe we're descendants of Robert Peel, that is not where we started at. Can you talk to me a little about what happened in, in 2017 that drew national attention? I think it was 2012. Um, we have three stories in our police department and I'm, I'm up on the third story. The Texans are also in that area. And like many uh, police agencies, we have pictures of old, old timers on the wall. And uh, I was in my office and a captain comes in and she says, you're not going to believe what I just heard in the uh, hallway. And I said, what's that? She, well, there's two African, elderly African-American women in the hallway, I guess waiting to see the detectives or something. And uh, one of them, uh, pointed to one of the old timers, you know, like back in the 40s, 30s, and said uh, under her breath to her friend, or at least companion, um, they killed our people. And the captain, who's African-American, I asked her, I said, do you know what they're talking about? She goes, no, I have no idea. So started doing some research, and it didn't take long for me to find uh, an article, well, series of articles, in uh, 1940 where a young man had been arrested by the LaGrange Police Department for uh, assault on a white woman, which in 1940 could be anything from a rape to failing to avert your eyes when you walked by a, a white woman. So he'd been arrested, taken down to the city jail, and shortly after he'd been uh, locked up, 
uh, about a half a dozen men showed up in hoods and guns and physically took him from the police and uh, took him out into the county and lynched him. It, I think it was, it wasn't on the front page of the LaGrange uh, newspaper. Uh, I think I found it, uh, you know, third, fourth page, a little snippet, but it was significantly covered, I believe, by the Chicago Tribune, New York Times, maybe the Washington Post. I found some old articles there, and the reason is at that same time, they were trying to get a federal anti-lynching law passed. Right. And, and uh, Democratic senators from the South um, were uh, stalling that, and so newspapers were trying to put, I think, pressure and uh, awareness uh, out into the public uh, to get this passed. And so that's why it was it was covered extensively. I couldn't find any report. I couldn't find any investigation. Um, the only thing I found was in Georgia when the grand jury meets, they have to go inspect the jails. And there was a in the grand jury presentment, there was a a line or two that said the Lagrange City jail needs better locks. So I found that out in 2012, and uh, I just I couldn't think of a way to address that and it happened you know like 70 years before I showed up but it was clear that there's quarters of our community that still um, base their opinion of our police department based on that incident even those that are aware of it or those that were alive at the time or those that have heard about it as these stories are passed on and so uh I think in 2016, um, the three mayors and the chair of the county commission recognized that uh, we need, we're a, a majority African American city, and so they and elected the mayors at that time and the county commission chair were all white, um, but they recognized that you know we need to do something that seriously address the issue of race. And so uh, they ended up going with uh, an organization in uh, Hope in the City in Richmond, Virginia. And it's a day and a half training. They selected uh, business leaders, community leaders, community members that are interested, activists, uh, government leaders. And the mayor told me about it. And uh, I said, well, Mayor, I said, you know, I've been to racial sensitivity classes, I've been to culture. I said, you know, frankly, uh, I'm about all sensitivity and culture down. So unless I'm required, I'm not interested. And to his credit, he, uh, he didn't require me to go. But then I started hearing who was going, that it was going to be something more than a couple of hours. Uh, and so I called him up and I said, hey, I would be interested in attending. So we attended. It was excellent training. It uh, helped you get through those things that are barriers because you tiptoe around with race. You know, somebody misspeaks, and all of a sudden, you know, somebody else confronts them. And so people tend to avoid it as opposed to deal with it. And I thought these exercises were very good in doing that. So after we were done with that, we had breakfasts uh, every other month, I think. They'd have speakers. And we had this woman who's grandfather was the sheriff uh, of the county south of us and had been involved in lynchings and she wrote a book about it 
and found the granddaughter, who's African American, of one of the of the fellow that her grandfather had been involved in lynching, and uh, family trees in the name of the book. So she uh, did a presentation on her book, and I went up afterwards and I said, "Hey, you know, I've been wrestling with this. Are you aware of any?" police agency or sheriff's office that have dealt with this. And she said, no. But at that meeting was, or breakfast was the uh, NAACP president. And so I just went up to him and said, Ernest, I said, I want to do something in the way of an acknowledgement or apology um, for the uh, lynching of Austin Calloway. You, will you work with me on it? And he didn't blink an eye. He said, absolutely. And so we started that in uh, the summer, I think of 16 and uh by the time we were done the college president was involved the mayor was involved one of our judges was involved the pastor of the church where austin had his um funeral service was involved the family member of austin calloway was involved um another group that that was doing research on lynchings in the area and so uh, that is what resulted as we worked through this in recognizing that, uh, you know, the agency had to address it. And to me, you know, um, if you go in as a leader to an organization, I think oftentimes we like to think, okay, BD, before DECMAR or after DECMAR? <laughs> if it's AD after after DECMAR, I'm responsible. If it's before me, not my, I didn't do it. Well, accept that when you come in as a leader and you're aware of issues that are out there, then part of the responsibility of leadership is to address them. And uh, I had only uh, one elected official that kind of pushed back a little bit, a white elected, and he said, you know, what are you doing this for? Uh, all it's going to do is create issues. Um, nobody was here that was involved. And I said, well, the problem is that I've got people in this community that still associate that with us. So it's as relevant today as it was in 1940 when I got little old ladies in my police department that are pointing the picture saying that we did this. Yeah, and, and you're right on this, right? So, you know, I used to say all the time, this isn't Rochelle's rules, right? These are these are the things we need to address, regardless of the fact that I'm chief here and that I'm chief now. And what's so interesting about it is, this ultimately, when everything came together, you had a public apology to the family about the role that the LaGrange Police Department played in either through omission or commission in the lynching of Austin Calloway. How did that how did that resonate with your officers? Because I hear a lot of community, and again, and I'll talk to you about Charlottesville briefly, there's a lot of it is, well, my family didn't own any slaves. My family didn't do this. I, you know, we're not the ones who beat the person or lynched the person. Why am I part of your truth and reconciliation kind of narrative around these issues? How did the officers respond? And how did it feel to have to make that apology to a family? Like, how did that feel on a personal level that you were having to say, this department that I am now the, in charge of, has this path that I've got to reckon with, whether I want to or not? Um, a lot of good questions in that. Um, they, uh, well, every year, you know, we have annual inspection. I've got around 100 officers, and so we've got all the cars lined up. They're all lined up. I go in. So before that, I 
went to the division commanders and I just said, hey, have everybody get over here in a group. I said, I want to share something with them. So this was in December. And we've been working on this since August. And there was, you know, there was a lot of uh, dynamics. So I wasn't sure what direction this was going with the group that I was working with. I knew where we wanted to end up, but I also wasn't sure how and when would get there. And so got a sense by the end of November that we were going to shoot for doing this in January. So we had our, our annual uh, inspection, and I call them all around. There's a little knoll, so I kind of stand up and see everybody. And I s- said, uh, I want to share something with you. I've been working on it, but before that, I want to remind you some background. I said, you know, we're less than an hour from Tuskegee, and all of you, I hope, know about the Tuskegee experiments from 1929 until 1971, U.S. Public Health Department used uh, members of that community as essentially guinea pigs withholding treatment for syphilis and then charting the uh, disease as it advanced. I said, uh, in this area, we've had 15 lynchings. Uh, In 1860, um, we were the fifth largest uh, out of 129 counties. We were the fifth largest um, slaveholding county that there were, according to that census, there were more slaves in this county than there were white folk. Um, It reminded them of the black codes. Um, And then I shared the uh, story of of Austin. And so the reason that I think that this is appropriate is we still have people in our city that associate us with that. And uh, so explained it. I said, does anybody have any questions? Does anybody know a better way to handle it? I'm not so far into this that I can't do it a different way. And of course, crickets. I mean, you know, nobody said anything. And so I said, well. And who is? Like, who's yeah. really going to push back and say, you know what? Yeah, we were part of that whole lynching thing. You're going to apologize for it. You know what? I'm out of here. Who wants right. to say that, even if they're feeling it? So I said, well. Then I assume, because no one is challenging this, that you agree. And uh, I don't know what's in your heart, but I do know what comes out of your mouth. And this is an agency initiative, so I expect you to support it then. Nobody's got any problem with it. And to their credit, when I left, I got about half a dozen texts from officers. They don't talk to you. They te- You're doing the right thing, Chief. Thanks, Chief. And uh, I got, matter of fact, I think... When the officers saw the response from our community, I think they were proud that we took that position because we had a good relationship before. And I think there are a lot of different dynamics. I mean, I've been police chief here for over 20 years. We've done a lot of stuff. And so it's not like I just came in and said, hey, we need to apologize. We had relationships. And so I wasn't I wasn't nervous as so much I was concerned that I would communicate in an effective way why and how we recognize um, uh, what should have been done by the police and how we can assure them that nothing like that would happen in the future. But, you know, we had good relations before and we're doing a lot of good stuff. But after that apology, it was almost like partnerships on Afterburner. Um, I mean, I can go through the things that we've done that uh, phenomenal in terms of uh, making it different in people's lives because we're now hearing how things are affecting them. And we're in a position uh, as as part of the criminal justice system to do something about it. So, you know what? So 
this history and, and, and why you're saying what is so important here in Charlottesville. So I'm still in Charlottesville, right? And this, this, I mean, this whole concept is, you know, it reared its ugly head in 2017 here in Charlottesville again uh, with these tiki torches and, you know, Jews will not replace us and blood and soil um, and very much these lynch mobs coming across um, UVA's campus into Charlottesville all in protest we're taking down with Confederate statutes, right? And surprisingly, and, you know, we have to admit this, in law enforcement, there is a large swath, whether we want to, to, to admit a lot of people, who sympathize with the Confederacy. Um, we're seeing it in the January 6th insurrections that there are a lot of military and law enforcement related individuals who thought that was okay. Here in Charlottesville, in actually July 12th of 1898, something really similar happened here. Um, there was a guy named James Henry, John Henry James. He was lynched in Abemarle. So we sit in Abemarle County and it's literally, you know, we butt right up against it, you know, and very similar. A black male was accused of raping a white woman with no evidence of the, of any rape. It was an accusation only. They have him in the jail in Abemarle, and they're going to put him on the train, the short train from Abemarle to Charlottesville. By all accounts, he was upstanding. Everybody knew him in the community. He had lived in Charlottesville about six years, and he sold ice cream. So he was a local ice cream entrepreneur. So very high visibility, high visibility job where people would have known the black individual in the community. When they were on the train, the very short, probably less than a mile ride on this train, a mob stands across the tracks, stops the train. The Abemarle Sheriff and the Charlottesville Police Chief are on the train with the prisoner escorting him. 150 white males, all unmasked, no hoods, nothing, drag them off the train. And where he's beaten, lynched, and tortured, um, etc. To this day, no recognition or prosecutions. Although the sheriffs and the, the chief would have known these people that were getting on the plane and just the fact that they were so emboldened, they didn't even bother putting on a mask. They knew that they were untouchable. That resonates to this day in Charlottesville, um, particularly with the EJI project, um, the Equal Justice Initiative, and the, the number of lynchings is how complicit we are in law enforcement. So I applaud you. Um, it may not seem brave to do what you did Right. It seems like the right thing to do, but we know all too often we don't do the right thing. Right. So doing the right thing and doing it so very publicly, you know, kudos. I was a fan back then when I, you know, when you were there, I, I was and still a huge fan of um, the work that you do. Your, your work in procedural justice and really understanding that this power that we hold is not ours, that this is the communities and they bestow that on us. And they allow us to have that that power. So kudos to you. As you're finishing up your 50-year career, you know, uh, you and I talked about it. You you said you're retired now, but that's that's not true. <laughs> um, I'm retired from police chiefing. Um, but, yeah, I do a, uh, a lot of consulting and uh, expert witness and management audits and uh, still do teaching and training. So, yeah. I'm very busy, but it's a good busy. I mean, it, it doesn't feel like work because uh, I don't, uh, you know, I miss um, the people. I don't miss the personnel issues. 
Um, I miss the elected officials. I don't miss the politicians. And I miss the community, but I don't always miss the community activists. (laughs) (laughs) You know, um, I hear you on that. I absolutely hear you on that. Lou, I am a fan. Um, I have always and will continue to be a fan. Um, Again, I've been with you in classes at UVA as we reimagine what policing can look like, um, about what the co-production of policing could look like, co-responder models long before any of these things um, were part of the cliche narratives that we need to do something different. And, you know, I want to thank you for being here with me. Um, I want to thank everyone for listening. Um, Our guest was Chief, retired Chief Lou Deckmar, former president of the International Association of Chiefs of Police. I am your host, Dr. Rochelle Brackney, and this is Black Armor the Law podcast. Again, please tell someone about the show. You want to follow us on Instagram. When you're doing all these things, we want you to follow. We want you to comment. We want you to subscribe. Um, we want you to participate. We want you to listen. Thank you so much. I am 1042. That means in the shift, I am out of here. Find Black Arm of the Law on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Black Arm of the Law is a mean old lion media production.